Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Praise you, God. Praise you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this evening, the gift of fellowship and community, and the gift of your word. We know, Lord, that you will speak to us tonight if we have ears that are open, hearts that are ready to receive. And so we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be focused and remove anything that is distracting us or weighing heavily on our souls. We pray, Lord, um, for all the things that are occupying our thoughts, are weighing heavy on our heart. And we entrust them to you and lay them at your feet. We just ask that your will be done. You are God and you are greater than all of our understanding, all of our struggles, all of the things going on tomorrow the stresses in our families, the bustle of the holiday season, all of it, you you break through all of that, Lord, with your power and your light. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that you would speak to us, speak words of truth, of comfort, of direction. And we pray that we would be ready to receive them. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it. And guide us as we listen to the words of sacred scripture. Let them convict and challenge us. Let them be written on our hearts so that we will carry them with us this week. We lay this time in our lives at your feet, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Now, tonight is one of those Gospels. This is the, uh, as always, the Gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the third Sunday of Advent. It is nicknamed Gaudete Sunday, because Gaudete is one of the Latin words for rejoice. We're rejoicing because Christ is almost here. Christmas season is almost here. And so you'll see the vestments and other things in the church will be colored rose, a pinkish color, to kind of signify the brightness and the joy of the fact that we are almost in the Christmas season. But we are still in the midst of the season of Advent, preparing a way for the Lord uh, to not only be born at Christmas time, but also to come again in the future and to come to us each and every day. So that is what our readings are aligned with, is that joy of Gaudete Sunday this Sunday. But this gospel is one of those readings where we jump around a bit. So we're going to read verses 6, 7, and 8. And then we're going to jump to verse 19. And this happens sometimes in the lectionary because they're trying to link two particular parts of a passage where the in-between doesn't serve the purposes of the theme of the readings of that particular Sunday. Not that it's unimportant, but uh, we're isolating in John chapter 1 those things that are specific to John the Baptist, who we were talking about last week and we continue to journey with this week. So we're in John chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, and then jump to verse 19. And we'll continue from there. Okay, so we're going to read this twice through. First time through, just get a picture for what's being said. This is the beginning of the prologue of the Gospel of John. And it is a presentation of the same figure and similar events that we read last week uh, in the Gospel of Mark. 
just a different perspective, different writing style from the Gospel of John, and some elaboration, uh, some details that we didn't have last week that we can talk about tonight. So, John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony, to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, Who are you? He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted, I am not the Messiah. So they asked him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? So we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say for yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Some Pharisees were also sent. They asked him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but there is one among you who you do not recognize the one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. This happened in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've heard this once through, again, I'll repaint the image of where we are uh, from last week. If you weren't here last week, John the Baptist is baptizing in the area of the Jordan River right by the Dead Sea. There is no growth, no lush greenery. It is completely dead. It's the lowest geographical place on the planet, about uh, 1,500 feet below sea level, something like that. Is that right? Someone said last week. Um, don't quote me. Quote them. Um, I think I might be misquoting them, but it's low. It's the lowest place on Earth. Uh, complete desolation out in the middle of nowhere, and yet all of these people are coming out to John to be baptized because there hasn't been a prophet in several hundred years. And John is now acting very much like a prophet, dressing like a prophet, speaking like a prophet, speaking to this hunger people have had uh, for generations of the coming of the Messiah. So that's kind of the scene that we're seeing here. Crowds and throngs of people from Jerusalem, which is just a few miles away, are coming out to see him. We'll read this a second time now, and this time through, I invite you to listen particularly to just the words as they are read. You may have an image of this in your mind. That's totally fine. Now just see if a particular word or phrase strikes you personally. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the theological interpretation or meaning of the passage. How is Jesus speaking directly to you through the words of sacred scripture? How does this relate to something going on in your life, a question you have, what you may be seeking? Uh, Listen for those things this second and final time through. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony, to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, 
Who are you? He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted, I am not the Messiah. So they asked him, what are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? So we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say for yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. Some Pharisees were also sent. They asked him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but there is one among you who you do not recognize. This one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. This happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now I invite you to take a few moments to reflect back on the passage and what stood out to you. If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, we'll do that, and then we'll take about the next 10 minutes to discuss at your tables what stood out to you and why. So if you're just a few people at your table, feel free to join another one uh, to discuss and and share your reflections, and as, as well as any questions that arise in you after reading this passage. Okay, so take about the next 10 or 15 minutes to do that, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for some teaching and discussion. So a little bit about the Gospel of John. John was the last Gospel written of the four. It is uh, not one of the synoptic Gospels, the synoptic sin meaning same, optic meaning view. So the same view Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they present what Jesus did from various viewpoints to communicate to the audience that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, etc. John more so wants to focus on Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? And not only is he the Messiah, but he is the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Even though he doesn't articulate that, the church took a while to learn how to articulate the Trinity. But that's what he's basically trying to convey. The divine power of God present to us, incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the language is very different. The literary style is very different. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who was a professor of literature at Oxford, said that the Gospel of John was unlike any written work before or after it for about 1,500 years until the invention of the modern novel with Don Quixote by Miguel Cervantes. So it's, it's a miracle in a sense that this work itself exists in the complexity that it does. I mean, it's dated to somewhere between 65 and 90 AD, you know, however conservatively you take the dates of scholars when this was written. I'm, I'm one to believe it was in the 60s. Um, and so that's a very old piece of literature a very old piece of archaeological evidence to the existence of Jesus, written written in such a complex literary style, such a complex and poetic form of Greek that puts like the Greek of Mark in pale comparison. I think it was Paul or one of the historians who read the book of Mark in its original Greek and was like, really this? Like this is like so simple, like almost like slang, like infantile Greek. If, If you are a scholar of Greek and you read the Gospel of Mark, like it is very, very rudimentary. And so the the Gospels span this whole wide array of literary genre and knowledge and style, and John is like the highest complexity of the Gospels. 
If you know the symbols of the four Gospels, the symbol of the Gospel of John is a bird or an eagle kind of soaring above, trying to show you this divine perspective, divine point of view as to who this Son of God, Jesus, is. And it's even in the literary style of John, if you read at the very beginning, what does it say? In the beginning was the Word. Sound familiar? Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, there was nothing. There was chaos. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God says, let there be light. And what do we read here in these first few verses? John came to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. So John here is very expertly mirroring the beginning of salvation history and the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, showing that this is a new chapter in the same story, that the prevailing character of the Old Testament, God, is present now in a different form in the person of Jesus. And so the style is the same. The seven days of creation are the same. If you've been in one of the studies where I've mapped this, actually in the first few chapters of John, you'll see in certain verses where it says, in the beginning, then the next day, and the next day. And the next day, and then three days later, is the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. It's this really interesting kind of literary device that John uses to show the seven days of creation at work and the way he's presenting the story of Jesus Christ. And so that's the whole mentality and style of the Gospel of John, to communicate that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And in order to do that, it elevates also the person who prepares the way, prepares the way for the Lord. And it talks very much about John the Baptist and his ministry and his important role, how he's fulfilling these prophecies of the Old Testament. The interesting thing about this passage, and I think that's going to relate to kind of a theme that really resonated with me, at least from this reading, is that um, all these people come out to see John the Baptist, right? It says the, 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 Leeds, the Levites, the priests, the Pharisees, all these predominant, prominent groups in Jerusalem, come to see John the Baptist, and they're asking him this singular question. By whose authority are you doing what you're doing? By what authority are you doing what you're doing? And they appeal to the, the, the authority that they know, the law and the prophets. And so they reference a few different people. They reference the Messiah. He's very clear up front. They barely don't even need to ask him. He says, I'm not the Messiah. So don't even ask me that. But then they ask, are you Elijah? And he says, no. Which is interesting because last week we talked about all the different comparisons between John the Baptist and Elijah. Elijah appears in the middle of nowhere, starts ministering and prophesying. He's clothed in camel's hair. He feeds on locusts and wild honey. He wears a leather belt. Exactly same modality of John the Baptist. Same outfit, same diet, same everything. And yet he says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. And if we go back to Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel announces to Zechariah that he is going to be with child. This is what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 16. He says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers toward children and the disobedience to the understanding of the righteous. And so he's saying, I'm not Elijah. I'm not aligning with this belief that you all have that Elijah is going to come back when the Messiah returns, and even if he does, I'm not that guy. But I'm presenting myself in the spirit of Elijah, one like the greatest of prophets, to get your attention, to point your way to the one you've been waiting for. When he says, they say, are you the prophet? And he says, no, they're talking about the prophet that is promised by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says, a prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up from among you, 
from your own kindred, that is the one to whom you shall listen. These are the people that the, the Hebrews were waiting for. Some of them believed they were all prophecies associated with one person, the Messiah. Some of them believed that Elijah would return to usher in the Messiah. Some of them believed the Messiah would be like King David because he was going to be in the line of David. He'd be a military ruler, someone who's going to overthrow Rome. Others believed he would be more like Moses, a prophet to give a new law, to remind the Hebrew people of all that they had lost and turned away from. So all of these expectations, all of these levels of authority that they're trying to say, by whose authority do you do this? At this time, if you were a rabbi, if you were a teacher, you couldn't say something just because you thought it sounded good. You had to say, in the school of Rabbi Shammai, who taught this, and Rabbi so-and-so, who elaborated on this, I now teach. You had to establish your credentials every time you taught, every time you spoke, right? We still learn how to do that when we speak. Ethos, pathos, and logos, right? Ethos is your credibility. Why should people listen to you? And so they had to do that anytime they were teaching in Jewish culture. By whose authority do you teach this? And if something came out of left field, they would say, by whose authority do you teach this? By whose authority are you here doing what you're doing? And if they couldn't answer that, then they could accuse them of blasphemy and write them off and tell the people you don't have to listen to this person, which is why they're constantly trying to entrap Jesus in his speech in the Gospels and ask him, by whose authority do you do these things? So they come to John the Baptist and he says, look, I'm not any of these people. I'm not the Messiah. But by whose authority do you do this? And I'm reading this and it just made me realize just in the context of this Advent season, things that have been going on in my own life, and maybe some things that have been going on in your life, but this, how this speaks to me is that grace and blessing, they often come in unexpected packages. The presence of God often comes in unexpected packages, ways that we don't foresee, ways that we don't believe that he could work, when we feel like we can't see how God is working. We feel like there's absolutely no way he could possibly be at work in the midst of this loss, this difficulty, this trial, this suffering. God tends to show up in unexpected ways. If all you were given was a copy of the Old Testament, and someone were to ask you, what will the Messiah be like? You might turn to Daniel and say, well, be like one, like a son of man coming on clouds of fire with hordes of angels. He'll be one like King David coming in with troops to overthrow Rome. He'll be one like Moses standing on Sinai, giving a new law with the presence of God, with thunder and lightning coming down and clapping all throughout the desert for everyone to hear. He'll be one like Elijah being drawn up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And what do we get? A vulnerable, unexpected, little baby of a package. That is how God chooses to come to us, in the most unexpected and seemingly ridiculous of ways. I was once at a talk by Cy Kellett, who, is, who works at Catholic Answers, and he was giving a talk during the Advent season. This was many years ago. And he said, um, this line has always stuck with me. He said, we rejected God as Lord over us, so he allowed us to be Lord over him. To take this position so humble that he had to rely on the leadership, the lordship of humanity to take care of him. That's how vulnerable and unexpected God came into the world to save us. And the, the, the child, an innocent child, the life of an innocent baby, completely helpless, completely reliant, completely humbled by the fact that it was dependent on everyone around it for its survival. That is how God came to us. 
And God is seeking to come to you in your life in these unexpected ways, these upside down ways, these ways that you do not expect, these ways that I do not foresee. And when I have my eyes so transfixed on God is like this, or I want God to show up this way, and I'm only looking at this possible outcome, and I'm hoping for it, and I'm praying for it, I am missing all of the ways that God is trying to bless me in unexpected ways every single day. I am completely missing and moving right past the ways that God could be present to me, even in the midst of terrible suffering, even in the midst of things that are totally confusing, even in the midst of a path where I do not foresee the destination or how I even got here, that God is somehow at work. One of my favorite phrases is, if God calls you to it, he will bring you through it. If God calls you to it, he will bring you through it. God doesn't call any of us to a life and then leaves us unequipped to handle the trials of that life without him. Now, we can have a life without Jesus, and we will not be equipped to handle it. Things will happen, we'll have immense suffering, we'll hit rock bottom, we will not be able to make it on our own, because brothers and sisters, you cannot survive this life, let alone eternal life, on your own. But if we have him, if we seek him in the unexpected, if we understand that we can put our trust in him, and that we don't have to have the full picture, we don't have to have the step-by-step guide and handbook as to how this life is going to go, or how God is going to show up and bless me, or answer my prayers, to fulfill the yearnings and the desires of my heart. I don't need that guarantee. I can just trust that God has given me example after example, time and time again throughout salvation history and in scripture, that even if he shows up in the most unexpected of ways, he can bring the most unexpected and profound of blessings to you and to me. And in the midst of this season, I love that Christmas happens at the darkest time of the year, right? That the nights are the longest. And then all of a sudden when Christmas happens, it starts to get lighter and lighter. We, the, the nights start getting shorter. The days start getting longer to remind us that in every single moment, in every single year, every single liturgical season, we are reliving this in the beginning. Let there be light. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your life, and your busyness, God is trying to bring light. And he's sending you people like John the Baptist to bring testimony to that light. And he's calling you to be the John the Baptist to other people to testify to the light. In fact, at that, abs- that same talk by Cy Kellett, I met this young woman. I have never seen her since. Her name was Joan. And uh, she's a young adult in San Diego. If you know her, tell her I said, what's up? Um, but her name was Joan. And she had this like fire of evangelism and she had this wild hair. And I just immediately started calling her Joan the Baptist because she just reminded me of John the Baptist so much. Like she just, she had this wild style and she was so free and she just loved talking about the Lord. You and I are called to be like that for other people. We are called to testify to the light for others, and others are being brought into our life to testify to the light for us. We are not above being testified to, and we are not below the responsibility to begin testifying to the light of Jesus Christ for others. The season is all a reminder of that. God comes in the most unexpected of ways. In fact, I think if you were to have handed anyone an Old Testament who had never read the New Testament and asked them, how do you think the Messiah would come? And then tell them, they would have laughed in your face. Nobody saw that coming, and yet it fulfilled every prophecy, every promise, and proved more abundant and the fruit of more blessings in people's lives than any one of those other paths probably could have produced. What can Jesus do in your life when we set aside our expectations, when we allow the packaging to not distract us from what could be inside, whether that's a person 
a person who we think on the outside, oof, not that one. That one can't, there's no Jesus in that guy. There's no Jesus in that one. If we were to disregard the packaging for a moment, maybe that person could be the greatest source of blessing in your life in this season. Whatever it is, a job loss, some kind of medical diagnosis, some terrible situation, family brokenness, whatever it is. What if we set aside how that looks on the surface and ask, God, do I trust you enough to know that you are already up to something good in this? You are already seeking to bless me through this. And so I trust you. You've did it before. You'll do it again. A lot of good stuff in this passage. That's all I have to say for the moment. Um, what are some things that you would like to say? What stood out to you? What questions do you have about this passage? I would love to hear them and answer them if I can. Margo. We were talking a bit about what you spoke of, the authority. Mm-hmm, the authority. But really, where do you have to go in the Baptist in this direction? How do you know what to do? What? Yeah, so where did John the Baptist get his direction? How did he know what to do? Yes. Yeah. Well, so the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 does tell Zechariah that he is going to prepare the children of Israel to come to the Lord. And so Zechariah was a priest. He was taking the role of the high priest at that time to go into the Holy of Holies. So he's pretty high up in the priesthood. He kind of probably understood what some of that might look like, knew the scriptures probably very well. So he could have, just as a parent, him and Elizabeth, instructed him in that way. They obviously knew Jesus. John the Baptist leaps in the womb of his mother Elizabeth at the moment of the visitation. So already in vitro is like acknowledging the fact that Jesus is Lord. Um, and then <clears throat> there is this, this interesting line uh, later on in John chapter 1, um, where it says, John is recounting the situation of Jesus' baptism. I think it's in verse 32. John testified further saying, I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from the sky and remain upon him. I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, you could interpret that and in saying like, well, John the Baptist didn't know Jesus. They're second cousins. That seems kind of odd. I think what this means is John the Baptist didn't know that Jesus was going to be the person to come and be baptized, and all of a sudden this was going to happen. He was following faithfully direction from someone he trusted, maybe even Jesus, to go and baptize, and listening to him and saying, hey, when the Spirit opens, that's the person that you've been waiting for. That's the reason why you're here baptizing. John the Baptist doesn't need all the information, just like you and I don't get all the information. Mary wasn't told, okay, you're going to give birth to the Savior, this is what's going to happen. By the way, when he's 12 years old, you're going to lose him. Don't worry. You'll find him. And then when he's 30, he's going to get disciples. He, she didn't get a play-by-play. They just said the Holy Spirit, uh, the angel Gabriel said the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. And she says, all right, may be done to me according to your word. Like, that's it. So John the Baptist, we can't assume that he needed any more information either. He was just given a calling, a mission, whether it was relayed to him by his parents, whether he was given a vision, whether he was told directly by Jesus or someone he was instructed by. Maybe the community of the Essenes he very likely lived in, in the Qumran area, because he dresses and acts very much like them. Um, he received some kind of nudge or instruction, or it could have been directly from the Holy Spirit. Because even though the Holy Spirit hadn't come to all of them yet, I believe it says in John chapter 1, um, when he is born, or sorry, Luke chapter 1, 
Somewhere it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his womb. I can't find the exact verse. It's somewhere in John chapter 1. Someone gets props if they can find it. But it does say it, I promise you. So uh, even from being in the womb, John is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he is following that direction. He's discerning what does the Lord want me to do. So he did, I'm sure, receive some kind of instruction. But that instruction was just enough to be in the right place, acting faithfully to what the Lord had asked him, in order for the Lord to show up and work. And really, that's a model for all of us, isn't it? We don't need all the information. We're never given all the information. But if we show up and we faithfully do what we believe the Lord has asked us to do, then God will show up in miraculous ways. So we don't have, you're right, we don't have written directly anywhere explicitly what was told to him or who told it. But we can assume a couple of those possibilities. Yeah, great question. Yeah, Chrissy. I was but the weird part to me is that Pharisees also ask him, like, why do you baptize? And, like, how do they even know that word if it wasn't mm. a Yes. Okay. So why are people coming? First of all, did anyone besides John, before John baptize? And how do they even know what baptism is and they're coming to John? Um, I'm trying to do a better job rephrasing the questions for all the people online because they remind me constantly. And I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. Um, I'm very bad at remembering. So, uh, and for all of you, if you don't, if you can't hear the questions, sometimes it helps. So, um, did anyone baptize before John? There were two existing, I talked about this last week a little bit, two pre-existing uh, kind of ceremonial washings that we know of. In the Jewish system, uh, you would go through some kind of ceremonial washing similar to what, like the visual style of a baptism if you were a Gentile converting to Judaism. Or the people who were the Essenes that John the Baptist is sometimes believed to be associated with practice very ritual purification and washing very often. It was also in the laws prescribed by the Torah for certain priests for certain actions. And the Pharisees ad adopted this into what they call the tradition of the elders to where they uh, said that everyone should be washing their hands like they would be doing a sacrifice before they even sat down for something like a meal. There were extra laws they were imposing on people that were not required. But this was a common practice, that you would go through some kind of ritual cleansing of water to purify yourself, to be able to enjoy a meal, make a sacrifice, uh, convert to Judaism. What we don't have before John is people who are already Jewish going to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. That is what we do not have before this, and that's something very unique to what John is doing. And it is not yet sacramental baptism, because baptism has not yet been commanded or formed in the proper formula by Jesus. He tells us the proper formula at the end of the Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. He says, go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then those who were baptized under John, we have different instances in this gospel and later on in Acts of the Apostles where they are re-baptized or they're actually validly baptized for the first time. So the baptism of John was more of a ceremonial rite of passage where you would acknowledge your sins as an act of repentance, but it wasn't anything sacramental. It didn't have that same effect that the grace of baptism does now in the New Testament, the New Covenant Christian tradition. Um, however, there is, I came across a really interesting passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, 
um, starting in verse 25. This is a prophecy uh, about how uh, when all of these things come to pass that Ezekiel is foreseeing, some of which are very apocalyptic, future-oriented things, there's going to be a regeneration of the people. This is right before the section in Ezekiel that talks about the dry bones coming back to life, a very famous passage from Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37. This is a chapter right before that. And so he says, I will sprinkle clean water over you to make you clean from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you so that you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, and keep them. Very, that's like, if I didn't tell you that was from Ezekiel, you'd be like, well, that's probably in the gospel. I mean, that's clear baptismal imagery being prophesied. Ezekiel writing several hundred years before Jesus is even born. So there is a pre-established kind of knowledge that with the coming of the Messiah is going to be this kind of baptism or baptismal imagery. There's another passage in Zechariah chapter 13, the first verse. On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to purify from sin and uncleanliness. Again, ceremonial washing to purify from sin. So John was doing something unique, not completely unheard of, but he is fulfilling the promises that the prophets prophesied about the Messiah and his coming, and he's prefiguring that by getting people used to that kind of sacramental language and system that Jesus can then establish later on. This is what real baptism is. Yeah, great question. Other questions? Yes, Daniel. In uh, verse 20, why did it have to mention the word admitted twice? He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted, I am not the Messiah. Yeah, I don't know why it's, it's twice there. It's just it, I, probably to emphasize. Anytime something is repeated in Scripture, uh, amen, amen, I say to you. You know, that has more clarity than just like, I declare, or hey, I have something to tell you. So anytime uh, that's, a word is emphasized, it's to uh, just reinforce its clarity on the position. So the, John is trying to write here. His whole job in the gospel is to establish that Jesus is the Messiah and the divine incarnate Son of God. And so it would be a big problem if from page one, Chapter one, people are like, wait, is John the Messiah? I mean, that would totally ruin his whole thesis statement. So he wants the audience to be very clear. John the Baptist is not the Messiah. John the Baptist is not the Messiah. And the interesting way that he puts it is also, uh, this is something unique to the Gospel of John. You may know this. In the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. Have you heard of this before? So there's these I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, very much aligned with this passage. I am the true vine. Uh, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am, uh, what are the other ones? Fruitful vine. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the word made flesh. I'm the living water. Something about water. I I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There it is. I found it. Um, so those seven I am statements are significant because they start with the phrase, I am, in Greek, ego emi, which is a translation of Yahweh, the forbidden name of God to speak out loud in Hebrew. So if someone says ego emi in Greek, they're saying the divine name of God. So if Jesus is saying, I am, fill in the blank, with that particular syntax, he's saying the divine name of God that only God was allowed to say, or the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so he's, he's declaring in a literary way that we don't really see in English 
But in the context of that time, he's declaring his divinity every time he makes an I am statement like that, something declarative. There's one other instance in this gospel, Gospel of John, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. And that's probably the clearest way we see it. And it becomes a resounding theme throughout the Gospel of John. And so John the Baptist, it's very interesting that he says, I am not. As in, not God. There is a God, I am not him. John is a great reminder for you and me to always keep that in mind. There is a God, we are not him. God is greater than our mind, our understanding. And that's why John, in his very last speech before he is killed, to his disciples in John chapter 3, he says, He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. St. Augustine said, if you can understand it, it's not God. And so if we think that we're on the same intellectual plane, that one day we're going to get to this place, we're like, okay, God, I see what you're doing. I can foresee. I can discern pretty well. I know what you've got coming down the pipeline for me. We are totally and sorely mistaken. God is not a concept to understand. He is a mystery to behold. And when we put ourselves in that posture of praising God instead of trying to analyze and grasp him, we put ourselves in our proper place in the divine order a place of praise, a place that acknowledges you are God and I am not. Praise you. You are the God of the universe, and I am your child. I am your creation. It would be ridiculous if, as Vincent Van Gogh is painting the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa was like, are you sure you're doing this right? And yet we do that to God all the time, right? Not even possible in that scenario, but anecdotally, you can see how ridiculous that would be. I use the example of my children all the time. It would be ridiculous for my daughter to say, Dad, are you going to feed me today? Are you going to let me? Are you going to let me live here still? Like you're five. Like why? You would never. A five-year-old would never worry about this. They trust completely in the provision of their parents. They don't question it. That's why Jesus often tells us, if you want to enter the kingdom of God or receive the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a child. You must have that kind of surrender. And so when we place God in His proper perspective, we recognize there is a God, and I am not Him. The world falls into its proper order. We fall into the proper disposition of trust, surrender, instead of seek, grasp, understand. That's very much like a modern, secular, almost sometimes in a very American way of thinking about the gospel. It's like, I can pull up myself by the bootstraps, manifest destiny, I can go and achieve whatever I want. Believe in yourself. And God says, no, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. And so it can be really difficult for us. Really different. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that mentality when you're thinking entrepreneurially and economically, but when we're thinking about God, we have to put that in check and recognize we're not in charge anymore. It doesn't matter what kind of effort or work we do. We are saved by the grace of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're saved by that alone. Only in that are we justified. And then our works need to match up with that. And if they don't, we will be judged. That answer the question, whoever asked that. I feel like I rambled off. I'm sorry. If it didn't, ask it again. Uh, was that you, Daniel? Did you say that? Yeah. Okay. Man, that was, felt like a while ago. I'm sorry. I went off. Greg. Verse 19. Yes. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to us to ask him, who are you? The Jews from the Asterisk. Is, like, is that like the hierarchy of the Sanhedrin? Yes. That's number one. And number two, I thought they used it, they sent priests. Mm -hmm. You hear about Pharisees, scribes, all these other people being sent, but I don't recall sort of being told they sent priests. Yes. To interview someone. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's kind of language for the entire hierarchy of the Jewish system being established here. The priests and the Levites usually constituted what we would call the Sadducees. But because John was written at a time where the Sadducees had largely been disbanded, he's using language that is still in the common vernacular. So he could have said, sent them a bunch of Sadducees, but he's writing much later than the other Gospels. Or maybe not much later, but he's the last one to write. Um, and so that might be why. And also, uh, the priests and the Levites, they're part of the established Jewish tradition. And so if they're going to question, are you like the prophet Moses, who the whole instruction about the role of priests and Levites was given to, they're a good group of people to go ask. So it's, it's kind of painting this disparity between the authority that they know that's been pre-existing in the, in the Jewish religious tradition and what John the Baptist is doing and kind of pitting them at tension against one another. It's very interesting. People often like uh, wonder about the, the, the Catholic Church and how the Catholic Church developed. And it's a Catholic Church, the Church of the Bible. And if you look at the Bible, you see that the Church is uh, organized in the very early days in and bishops, presbyters, and deacons. It's just kind of threefold hierarchy that we still have today. That existed also in the Jewish system. You had the high priest, the priests, and the Levites. The Levites were at the service of the temple. They didn't commit the sacrifices in the same way that the deacons are at the service of the mass. They don't perform the sacrifice of the mass. And then the priests and the high priest, they are the ones who actually do the priestly work of sacrifice. It's very identical almost to the kind of threefold structure we have today. It's clear that God was doing something, he had a clear trajectory in mind. So um, it's, I think, to establish that kind of tension between the existing hierarchy and then on what authority is John the Baptist doing this. But that's probably why they're mentioned that way. Anytime you see, in the, especially in the Gospel of John, the Jews, that should never be, uh, as it has been, unfortunately, historically, evidence for any kind of anti-Semitic interpretation that the Jews killed Jesus and that we have to hate the Jews or be against them. Absolutely not. That's a phrase that was being used by John at the time he was writing because the Jews represented the hierarchical leadership that was seeking to persecute them, namely the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the elders, but not the Jewish people as a whole. I mean, that was part of the huge base of people that were converting to Christianity. You really don't want to make an enemy out of those people you want to be your prime converts who you're going to first, which is clearly evidence in Acts of the Apostles. They always go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. So um, that's, if ever you see that phrase, it's not meant to be something demeaning to our Jewish brothers and sisters. It was a word being used at the time to paint the enemy for the enemy, which was the Jewish hierarchical leadership that had crucified Jesus and was seeking to kill um, the, the leaders of the, the new Christian church. Yeah, Alan. Can you just ask the question I'm going to ask? You can ask just a little more. The Jewish authority, mm -hmm. the high priest, like, what were they that worried about that John was doing? You kind of explained it already about the priest, the Levite. I understand that because that's what, again, you're kind of stepping into our area. But the, they said, but our bosses sent us. Who is that? The high priest, the Jewish governor, and what were they yeah. worried about? Yeah, I think who sent them would be probably the Sanhedrin and or the high priest. Um, so at that time was Annas, uh, the high, Caiaphas's father. Um, and so he would have sent them out to see who is this guy. Um, remember, there hadn't been a prophet for several hundred years. Malachi is the last prophet we have in the Old Testament. And Malachi is prophesying a lot of things that seem like they're happening. Chapter 3, verse 1, now I am sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Chapter 3, verse 23, now I am sending to you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes, the great and terrible day. So if the last prophet who had ever prophesied is saying very specific things, 
that this guy is now quoting and dressing like the figure that the last prophet talked about, they want to go investigate, is this legitimately happening? Is this really the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah? Because if it is, I mean, just think about like your personal security. You probably want to be on the inside track with the coming of the Messiah. You don't want to be caught off guard or unaware, especially if you're in a position that could be very easily scrutinized, like one of the Jewish leadership. If the Jewish people had gone astray and the Messiah was going to come and rectify that, who is he going to go to first? The leaders. That's why I always quote James chapter 3, not many of you should be teachers because you will be judged more harshly. You know, so those who were in leadership, they had a higher price to pay if uh, the Messiah was going to come and make them pay an account for the um, spiritual health, you could say, of the Jewish people. Yeah. Yes. The phrase the Jews? Oh, you know, I don't know. It might be. Yeah, it might be. But I just know like the classification of that, like in the footnotes and just the historical interpretation that is only clearly meant to mean the leadership that was against the Christian community. So yeah, no, I'd have to look into that. That's super interesting. I didn't know that. Thank you. Prize for you. You're awesome. <laughs> That's where it says John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Final question. Yes, yeah, so that's in, in a, one of the, well, kind of the bridge between the first and second part of Isaiah. But Isaiah is prophesying at a time where the Hebrew people have fallen into idolatry and they're going down a destructive path and the Babylonian Empire is going to come and wipe them out and take them into exile. And so he's basically saying, like, I am coming to prophesy to you that you need to make straight this way in the desert. You need to get rid of all these obstacles to the Lord to come to you. You need to turn aside from idolatry or you're going to be destroyed. And like many prophecies, there's an immediate fulfillment and then a long-term fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment was that context of the Babylonians coming, wiping them out completely. And then it also happens to uniquely apply to Jesus as well. Yeah, great question. A lot in this passage, a lot more that we could talk about. I hope and pray that you'll continue reading this and reflecting on it uh, in the coming week. But I hope especially that you'll have eyes that are ready to recognize and see the ways that the Lord might be coming to you in unexpected packages this week and this Advent season. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of this time in your word. We pray that you would um, allow the things that struck us and stood out to us to stay with us, to provoke deeper reflection, so we can grow in deeper relationship with you, especially putting ourselves in right posture toward you, posture of praise where we recognize that you are God and that we are not. So help us to trust in you, to surrender, to know that you have been faithful and you will always continue to be faithful, even though you work and do things in ways we do not understand or foresee. You are still at work and you are always up to something good. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have the faith, the trust and the surrender in you to know that even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of the darkest days of our life, some of whom may be having the worst day of their life right now today, that you are still at work, that you are still with us, and that you have not forgotten us. You are faithful. So we pray, Lord, and rejoice for the light that is beginning to shine in the midst of the darkness as we anticipate the joy of the Christmas season. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.